Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Ilya with the Spectrum Strategy Group again, and uh, today uh, I have Karen Lean with me, and uh, I'm very happy to be able to chat with you again. I know we've done some work in the past, uh, and today we're going to be talking about relationship, um, and I think well, I know we're going to go into a lot of different topics into that, uh, but you know, first, um, you know. I just want to say, Karen, um, I, I'm happy to have you here and welcome again. I'm really pleased to be working with you again. And I always find all of your talks and um, just our conversations um, very inspirational. And I also learn a lot. And I think a big piece is uh, just self-discovery for myself. So I wanted to make sure I brought some of that to our listeners today. So um, so welcome. So you want to give a little bit of background on who you are for our listeners? Thank you, Ilya. I'm so glad to be here uh, to talk to you. Um, Let's see what to tell you about myself. Um, I'm hoping that as we as we talk, the audience can discover things about me. I like to do it that way as opposed to giving you a laundry list of who I am. A um, couple things about me that I do like to to say up front. Um, I'm originally from Canada, um, and I was diagnosed with Asperger syndrome in 2009 at the age of 32. Um, which makes me almost 44 right now. And what else to say? I think uh, <laughs> um, I've, I've been on a journey in my life, and I think a lot of the things that I like to talk about, um, I've, I've certainly given talks to A&E, as you know, uh, the Asperger Autism Network. Um, I, I, I've given talks to um, MRC professionals, like rehab counselors, um, vocational counselors. I've, um, in general, I, I like to, I, th I think that what I talk about is probably applicable to a broader audience, uh, not just autistic people. Um, Agree. <laughs> of course, I spent most of my life um, not knowing um, some of the challenges that I had. And so uh, that process of self-discovery, I think, is, is a process everyone goes through, um, regardless of the kinds of challenges they have in their life. And, and so I think we can all relate to that on some level. Um, and one of the biggest things that I've had to work on, in a way, is self-acceptance, which I think is also something that everybody maybe struggles with or has a challenge around. Um, or maybe most people. <laughs> so, so that's kind of where I'm coming from uh, with this. I think there's kind of that universal human condition that um, the particularities of, of that is, is unique to each individual and where we find commonality is where we can find um, growth, support, and inspiration. Yes, very much agree. And, and again, um, in all the things I, we've chatted about in the past, I always feel like everything that you talk about is relevant for, I agree, I think it's everyone, okay, or nearly everyone, like you said. Um, but can can you take me through a little bit, I know, as you said, we're all on this journey of self-discovery, and like I, I kind of think of it as always like refining and changing and kind of um, you know, best laid plans. Sometimes you have to kind of learn to pivot and, you know, all of those kind of things. But if we, but if we're thinking about this self-discovery piece in terms of relationship, I know we've talked, you mentioned self-acceptance and self-discovery. 
Um, what has some of that process been like for you? I think we could talk for three hours about that. <laughs> um, but, but let me see if I can nutshell it for you. So, um, you know, I, I think that that self-discovery and self-acceptance have, have been key for me and, and specifically in relation to relationships with others. Um, in part because in my experience, self-acceptance um, is key to understanding or setting a boundary around um, whether others not accepting me is okay. Um, what is it about myself that I accept? What is it about myself I do not accept? Um, and in my past, certainly before I was diagnosed as on the spectrum, and I will say the Asperger's diagnosis also came with a central auditory processing disorder diagnosis where I saw an audiologist and, and that was huge. And we can talk more a bit about, about why that, that is something I emphasize in my, my own process. Um, before that self-awareness, before the, the information came to me, um, I was really struggling. Um, I had you know, a couple of mental health diagnoses like anxiety and depression, but, um, and certainly with those diagnoses, a, a good uh, bulk of the symptoms in a way come with this lower self-esteem and feeling bad about myself. And in that sort of space of not feeling good about myself and, and not liking myself, not accepting myself, I think it was easier to have relationships with others, and I would say romantic relationships, but also other kinds of relationships where the other person didn't accept me either. And to the extent they did not accept me, that fit with my view of myself. Um, why should they accept me if I don't accept myself? You know, if I don't like that about myself, then in some ways I'm giving them license to do the same. Um, and to the extent that I may have been dependent on others to accept me in order to accept myself, then that could lead to a vulnerability or th that certainly in my life demonstrated a vulnerability to people who not only didn't accept me, but manipulated me to change, perhaps in ways that were in their interests, but not in my own. Right. And so, I mean, I think one of the things that I think all of us um, would struggle with is what are the things that, um, like you said, some some of the, I'm going to use the word encouragement, that's probably not the right word, um, the, you know, the push to change some of the things about who you are. How, I mean, I don't think this is an easy question. Obviously, I don't think any of this is easy, but how, do you, how does one determine what are the things that we want to change and what are the things that we don't? And I guess there's also the question, what are the things we can and what are the things we can't, right? Absolutely. Um, this notion of what about myself can I change is important. And in some ways, I like, I do like to start there. Um, and, I'll, and I'll also just say up front, this is an ongoing process, right? The, the world is always changing. Reality changes, right? So what may have been true five years ago for me is probably not true today. And what is true today may not be true five years from now. Or in and even even shorter than that, what's true today may not be true tomorrow. So <laughs> you know, yeah. I think I yeah. think that, that that's important important to note. Um, but I sort of think about this question of what what can I change, what should I change, what do I want to change? Um, in sort of a model, I have this this uh, it's almost kind of like a a turducken model. I'm just making this up as I go, but you know, <laughs> at the very core might be the things we can't change, right? Um, there's things I can't change about myself, certain aspects of my identity, perhaps that I cannot change. Um, I think around that might be things that maybe I can change. Um, examples of things I might be able to change are um, 
the kinds of environments that I'm in. So, you know, I might have one job today, but I could change that, right? So that 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 that's something in the maybe change bucket. Although, you know, for me or anybody else, it may be more or less difficult to change that environment. Um, my financial situation might be another thing that could be closely tied to my employment, for instance. And then, um, so that's the second layer. <laughs> um, and then the third layer on the outside is like stuff I can change. And what I would put in that bucket is a lot of things like skills and knowledge, um, you know, behaviors, things that I have choices about. Um, and, and sometimes there are things in the skills or behavior or knowledge bucket that may not feel that changeable. Um, and I think using this model for me has sort of helped me understand, well, what is it I have no control over? And what are the things I might have some control over? And what are the things I have total control over? And um, to the extent that I can control something and I have choices, then, then, I, then I can make decisions about it. And the benefit of this model has also, I think, been around my relationship with others in terms of what I expect them to change and what I can recognize that they're not able to change. And, and so really helping honor and respect where the other person is at um, and being reasonable about what, about what I might expect from them. Right. And I think, I mean, what a, what a, um, what a great way to even open up conversations with people that you're in relationship with also. I mean, I don't, I don't think it would be as easy as just, hey, let's go through this model. Um, <laughs> but but like to have these conversations around the things that and, and, and I'm, I'm interested, I want to kind of go back to what you can't change. And I think this might be where some and I'm, I guess I'm going to speak for myself, but where some people kind of get hung up what are the things I think I might be able to change, but in fact I can't because they're part of who, of who I am, right? They're just built in. Uh, and that, that sometimes feels challenging for me to determine what is it that I really can't change? I mean, um, yeah, and then to accept those pieces. And it can be as simple as, um, you know, I'm going to use an odd example, but like, I sometimes I took a shower earlier today and then when I got out, I'm like, oh, my skin just feels itchy, right? It's just itchy. And then the thought I had in my head was, I wonder if most people have that feeling. I don't think they do. So there must be something wrong with why my skin feels itchy, but it happens to me all the time. And then I go, no, Ilya, it's just, that's just what happens to you when you get out of the shower and it will go away eventually. Um, it's just how you're built. Just, you know, accept it and move on and it'll get better. Um, so there's these, it, it, I think it can happen with such small things, but imagine things that can be much more significant and impactful, I Definitely. think. And I, I don't underestimate those small things either. Mm. Um, for, for the record, that happens to me too, um, <laughs> especially in the winter, although I'm not going yeah. to suggest that it's only dry skin that might be causing that. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I think that there are so many things, and certainly for me as a systematizer, um, all those little things, you know, there's, there's two aspects. One is that all the little things can add up right? Um, even a little thing, it's like, it's like the, um, trying to think of the analogy, but it's like, it's like the little fly crawling on your arm, you know, um, sometimes even the littlest thing can be pretty big, you know, just from a sensation point of view or from a, uh, an awareness point of view. Um, and that whether it's big or small, there's an aspect to those things that might be about state regulation, you know, like how how is it that I can manage this situation or this condition or this inner experience? And um, there are some things that we can't change. I think meditation comes in here as a practice, just the experience of sitting and sitting on a meditation cushion and being very still and getting an itch. And you're like, well, how, <laughs> yeah. how do I, okay, there's an itch on my face. 
do I scratch it? Can can I, what happens if I watch it? What is it? Does it get more painful? Does it go away? I've, I've sat on, on in meditation and actually had an itch disappear. It's like, Oh, you know, sometimes I'll watch it and it gets worse and worse and worse and almost intolerable. Like it's painful. And then other times it just goes away. And, and that's really interesting, right? Like, this is a sensation. It could be very, very difficult to, to, and uncomfortable, but is it, is it something that, you know, certainly I can just scratch my face. That's something that I could change. Right. <laughs> um, sure. but, but that's actually, I think part of the, the practice of meditation is, is learning that actually that discomfort, that discomfort isn't that consequential because I know what it is. And, and is it, is it necessary to get rid of all discomfort? So this is a huge, a huge thing in relationships too. So I'll take it into that realm. Um, you know, if, if my, if my spouse chews really noisily, now, if I have misophonia, um, the condition where sounds can be so painful and induce rage, um, you know, we might want to address that, but if it's, <laughs> if it's just a little uncomfortable for me, um, is that something that I can live with or that I can accept about my spouse and then say, okay, well that's, that's happening. And, and maybe I need, maybe I need to change something in my behavior or just need to withstand it. Now, if you add up all those little things, and this is the thing about autism, I think that that's extremely important in, in my experience, um, because I would say in some ways, sensory processing is the biggest symptom that I experience that kind of, uh, I think sensory processing issues can actually be what impacts my social functioning a lot. Like there's a connection there and, um, that that if you add up all the things that I have to do to regulate myself because of sensory input challenges, um, that actually adds up to a lot. That's that becomes not. It's like piling a bunch of ant hills on top of one another, and eventually it becomes a mountain. So um, one of the things that my current marriage um, is supportive of me doing is trying to eliminate as many ant hills as possible so that I don't end up with a mountain. One of the things that my husband has said to me, so some of this model, this uh, model that I outlined about what can I change and what can I not change, was inspired by something he said to me really early on in our dating relationship. Um, I think there was something that he was doing that was really, really affecting me from a sensory point of view. And I was really nervous about approaching him about changing something in the environment. And, and I think he, he detected the, the level of emotion that I was having around just trying to ask him about this and whether we could change it. And he looked at me and he said, Karen, I'll change what I do, not who I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that was such a powerful distinction for me to learn, which was that there are so many things that really are not at the core of who we are. And uh, for me to think about that, if I'm willing to change something, it doesn't alter who I am, the ethics or, um, you know, my integrity, um, then it can be negotiated. And then there are some things that just can't be. Right. And so what if, if you don't mind my asking, what has been some of that um, discovery for you? Of how, Like, what are some of the, I guess, tools and strategies you've used to help discern what is it that is part of my core and that, well, first, I can't change and also things that are just true to who my values are, uh, to what my values are and who I am. And what things can I, you know, am I okay with changing what are you know what are the things that and, and I think that's a that's a, again an ongoing process and discovery but I'm curious you, you mentioned meditation but are, were, were there other things that 
happened or that you use to help with, um, and I think your meditation example is important because in this, you know, one of the things when I'm, as I'm learning med- a new style of meditation right now, it's it's about connecting yourself to your body and your sensations and um, sort of that exploration and discovery. And we oftentimes don't sit long enough to be aware of how our bodies are actually feeling or what sensations we're actually feeling. So if we translate that to off the meditation cushion or off the mat, right, like what other ways um, do you think you've been able to kind of discern those those things? Hi, this is Elia. Just wanted to let you know that SSG also offers trainings, consultations, and parent coaching. Uh, check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Mm, that's a great question. I'm going to give a really concrete example in a way. Um, so when I was assessed for Asperger syndrome, I was also assessed by an audiologist. Um, uh, and this was more than a hearing test. This is, uh, you know, a test for auditory processing. And um, I I got the report back. And, you know, I have, I have 100% hearing acuity. A lot of things, I was fine. Um, I came out at, you know, 95th percentile, which is, you know, I'm, I'm, in that metric, I was, you know, almost as good as, as normal, as it were. Um, but I did learn that and when it came to hearing and background noise, I'm at fifth percentile. And this is staggering to me. This was at 32 this was all of my life. Um, I didn't realize that this was a challenge for me. This is something that I can't change. If you put me into a an environment like a restaurant or a cafeteria um, or even a a subway car or something. And I'm trying to listen to somebody talk. I have a really hard time. If I'm at home and the television's on, we don't own a television, by the way, but um, when, you know, when I, when I was with a partner who did, if the television was on and they were trying to talk to me, that would be really hard for me to process what they were saying. And this recognition was so fundamentally important because I could then begin to recognize that when I got into an environment like that, I was actually not able to hear well. Now, this is contrasted with before that, I had no idea. And so I would struggle through those things. I mean, most people, you know, at a certain noise threshold, everybody has trouble with this. It's called the cocktail party effect. Um, but it happens to me at a very much lower threshold. And what this allowed me to do with this knowledge um, is that instead of struggling through those situations, expecting myself to perform in a way that my body could not, um, I am able to advocate for myself. Um, And actually, even when I was dating uh, about six years ago, I was able to put in my dating profile that uh, certain environments were not conducive to me having a great date. So, hey, if you want to go to a dance club, we're probably not going to get along too well. Um, And so that that allowed me to set good boundaries. It allowed me to ask for what I needed. And when I was dating, you know, the people who Um, And actually, my current husband was the most considerate about this. We'd go to a restaurant and he would ask the host for the furthest table from all the noise. Like if if we're getting sat in a restaurant and there's a large party or there's a speaker right above the table, he will ask them if we can move. And sometimes I ask, sometimes he asks. But having a partner in that who is aware, accepting and supportive of lowering the uh, demands on my system. I would say that that's a very concrete example of what you're asking. Right. 
No, and it's a beautiful example because it's also the your your partner is being aware of what your needs are and also what will just make the experience um right like just better for both of you because you can then engage in the conversations that you want um and have a pleasurable dining experience <laughs> instead of it being a struggle um and then that and then nobody has fun in that situation totally and i think that Really, I mean, I don't know that I could emphasize it enough how night and day, how how different the experiences of having that awareness compared to fighting through noise all the time and how much less energy I have to spend and how much more energy I then have for other things that might be demanding. Um, so so yeah, I think I think those things, added up it's all the all the little ant hills that become a mountain um and accepting discovering what those things are and accepting them does help especially in the areas that i can't change yeah i mean you know one example that i think is is similar um and again this is thinking about people who I guess who are aware and, and I don't know, we could say know you better, but it's not always those people. Um, But I, I tend with, if we're in an environment where there's been a lot of talking or there's a lot of, not a lot of, it doesn't have to be a lot of people. It can be like six, you know? Um, But, but then at some point I start kind of getting really quiet and I start shutting down and I have one friend who will say like she'll come over and she'll whisper to me she's like you were done like an hour ago I can I can tell you're like just kind of checking out a little bit and I it's the first time someone other than my my spouse who really acknowledged the fact that that what was happening now was getting difficult for me um but what I had been doing you know for years I mean this seriously just happened like six months ago um but I, you know, I kind of would push it away, right? And be like, no, no, everyone is still here. Everyone else is still enjoying their time. Let me just, let me just suck it up and deal with what's happening right now. Um, And so I would push aside what my needs were in order to fit in with the the group, right? With what everyone else was doing. Um, But then it can take me so much longer to recharge and then I don't I don't want to get together with people for a really long time then (laughs) so so right that's something that I have to learn to kind of say all right well I've had this event beforehand and I had this (laughs) I have this event coming up maybe this day is a break kind of day and I would think um whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship to have, to be able to have those open conversations. And I I feel like this one friend is, you know, she, she gets it. She understands what, what's happening with me. And I feel so okay saying, you know what, I think I'm just going to go into the other room for a little bit or whatever. And she would totally be fine with that. Um, But the rest of the group might not understand. And so I would feel uncomfortable. Um, But I think with a, with a romantic relationship, it's it's so important to have those kind of conversations um to be able to you know make the relationship uh work and to feel safe and comfortable and accepting um and that's just one again just another small example of that what a gift your friend gives you by just recognizing where you're at and giving you the space to meet your needs um and you're absolutely right that isn't this is even more important in a committed long-term relationship potentially that involves cohabitation right um because that's the person you see every day not someone that you can kind of take take space or time away from in the same way although again you know taking space and time with the person that i live with um, gives both of us that chance to recharge. And, um, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, needs that we, I think we have that are, that are fairly similar in that respect. So it, so it helps. Um, there can definitely be 
people with whom I, I would not be compatible. You know, they, they want more verbal, <laughs> they want more verbal interaction than maybe I have in me. Um, and I, and I do think that this dovetails really nicely with, you know, the sense that part of what we can change is our expectations of other people. Um, and so we've been talking mostly about the self. Um, I think that one of the biggest gifts that I can give other people is realistic expectations and expectations that are more about their needs and their freedom than mine, right? Other people don't exist to serve me. Other people don't exist or, you know, to meet my needs. Um, I have needs and they have needs. Each person has a set of needs. Um, when we're kids, uh, when we're very little, uh, our parents meet our needs. And when we're very, very tiny, they meet every single need. And part of growing up is beginning to take care of those for ourselves. And I, I think that one of the things that can become really difficult in a, in a love relationship, in a romantic relationship, is a sense of this person's here to meet my needs, a, a, a sense of expectation that the other person, and I, I don't think that this is conscious or intentional all the time, but to the extent that the other person exists to help me or serve me in some way or meet my emotional needs. Um, but recognizing that other person is separate, is an individual, has their own world and their own needs, um, and that to the extent that they meet mine is a temporary blessing at best. Um, this uh, notion that everything is impermanent, whether it's the itch on my cheek or the life that I have and the life that I share right now with, the, with this person, um, recognizing the impermanence of that and, and making sure that neither of us feel captive, feel that um, we have such obligation to the other that we constrain our dreams and our goals or even our needs in the moment to, to the other person at the expense of us. That I think that has, the maintenance of that is so important. And in the past, when a relationship I've been in has lost that, where somebody begins to expect of me something perhaps that I'm not even capable of, of giving them, um, that that's when a really unhealthy dynamic can unfold. Right. And, you know, I know, um, one of the things that we've we've talked about in the past, um, and I know you've talked about, is this this exact thing about a supportive relationship and you know supportive environment. I think sometimes, and you said it earlier too, where you know you would find people, and I think we've probably all done this: find people, whether they're friendships or you know other types of relationships, that will confirm right what we already think about ourselves. Um, and, and making that transition from having sort of that, I don't know what we would call that. So sort of like that, that, um, negative reinforcement <laughs> or that self-fulfilling kind of confirmation of, yes, we know we're not good at X or we know that this is, a, a, you know, something that I need to work on. And then we're going to find that person who might just continue to point that out <laughs> to us, um, to making that shift to that supportive, um, relationship, I think sometimes is really, uh, difficult. And I think it also starts early on, right? Like whether it is, you know, when you're a young child or when you're in school, it's sort of thinking about, um, how some of our needs were either not met the way they needed to be, not by anyone's fault, um, just kind of because of un being unaware, um, or for whatever reason, uh, and then sort of having to unlearn some of that and relearn. It's, it's almost what you, what you just described was almost the whole thing for me. Um, 
And, you know, to, to just be clear, I, I did not grow up in, in an abusive environment. I, I grew up in a very supportive environment in a certain way. Um, and I think you, you're exactly right when you say, yeah, the, the lack of awareness about, about what my needs might've been because they, some of them were a bit unusual, right. Um, meant that some of those needs weren't met and, um, I had to do what my best, what, what was at, at my, what was accessible to me, I guess you could say, um, in order to get by, you know, so for instance, in a classroom environment, it was hard for me to sometimes uh, process what the teacher was saying. Um, I have very strong reading skills, so I compensated by reading everything. Of course, there were things that were necessarily on the page. Um, not everything was written down. So I missed some of the material or I missed some of the expectation. Um, so that's an example. Uh, and I think that unlearning it or one thing that I would definitely say is that supportive environments and I do, I do differentiate between an actively supportive environment and a passively supportive environment or an actively unsupportive environment and a passively unsupportive environment. Um, so it kind of is like if, you know, if you think about an actively unsupportive environment, that would be an abusive situation. And I've, I've certainly been though in those in my life, but I, I don't consider my, my upbringing or my childhood to be in that category. Um, and I think we can also experience a mix, right? An environment that might be sometimes passively unsupportive. Maybe it's a little invalidating, maybe, you know, even just by virtue of not understanding that sensory processing disorder is a, is a problem, right? So expecting a child to kind of be able to navigate their world, make sense of it, and tolerate certain kinds of discomfort, um, their threshold may be lower for some of that. And if without the awareness that that's happening, then the demands on the child are, are way too great and, and may then involve some kinds of decompensation at certain points when it's just too much, right? Um, that might be like what I would call a passively unsupportive environment. Um, in the sense that there's a lack of awareness, right? That that this is a need. Um, and so therefore it's not being supportive, but it's not being unsupported in a very active way. Like that need that you appear to have, well, that's not, that doesn't matter, right? Like that um, that it's recognized, but then said, well, but you, you, you don't deserve to have that need met, right? That would be an actively unsupportive environment. And then, you know, it is possible to have an environment where there isn't really anything bad happening. It isn't really even doing anything to not support the person, but it might, it might be like encouraging, but not what I would call empowering, right? This actively supportive environment that really meets the person where they're at, where, wherever that is. And the more I move forward in my life and grow, recognize my own needs and my own limits and capabilities and and desires and and power even um and and appreciate that in others the more i see that meeting people where they're at is something everyone needs um is is the state in which we're supporting their learning in the best way and in my job as i'm mentoring people in in the it role that i have um, this comes up over and over again. You know, if I, I may be an expert in the area that I work in, and then if I'm pairing with someone who isn't, who is just learning, um, then there's all kinds of ways that I can't expect them to have the knowledge that I do. Um, and if I don't know what they don't know, and they don't know what they don't know, then the two of us have to figure that out. Um, but expecting them to catch up to me, expecting them to be in a place they're not is unfair and unsupportive. Um, and so I, I do think this, this applies across my life in many different contexts, including, including in, in love relationships.
Right. And I think, you know, flipping this around, like you said, we've talked a, a bit about self, um, but flipping it around with, right, allowing for this for your, the people that you're in relationships with and allowing that same um, active, supportive uh, environment is something, it's like sort of the other lens that we need to look through as well. Yeah, and I think that not accepting others in some way is, it goes along with not accepting myself. So if I'm really practiced in accepting myself and accepting the situation as it is, um, then I can partner with others to solve the problems that are in front of us. Whereas if I feel bad about what I am capable or incapable of doing, if I'm, I feel bad about the current situation and also expect that the other people in my environment are the ones that are supposed to solve it. Um, then I'm expecting, perhaps I'm expecting things they're not capable of, or perhaps I'm expecting them to prioritize something that isn't a priority for them. It gets even worse if I'm expecting them to prioritize something that is a priority for me, but I haven't communicated to them that it's a priority for me. Um, and so I, I sort of see this as a multifaceted prism in a way that's very context-based which I think can make it difficult, um, especially at times when context is challenged. I would say for me, context can be very challenged when I am overloaded. Um, the more I'm overloaded, the less I pick up on contextual clues in my environment. Um, so I, I think that, you know, I'm talking to you, Ilya, and it's like, I'm saying things in some ways they might sound like rules, but it's actually really hard to systematize this in a concrete way. It's, it's almost very fluid. Um, and you know, it's sort of like a, how it, with a prism, the light's coming through it and depending on how you hold the prism, you're going to see something different. Um, and, and it's similar to this, that, that every relationship is by definition relational. Right. And um, I think that there is no simple or single truth to any given um, relationship. And the more people you add, the more complicated it gets. So I was thinking back to your example with your friends and sitting around and this one friend who acknowledges that you're overloaded and that you might want to go take a bit of quiet time in the other room and the rest of the people kind of going, what's wrong with her? Why is she in the other room? You know, like, because th from their point of view, they're sitting around and talking and laughing and having a great time. And none of them may be experiencing, we don't know, maybe some of them are experiencing and, and um, muscling through as, as you put it, um, that same kind of experience. But if their experience is very different from yours, and what they're doing is expecting you to be like them, then um, they're expecting something unreasonable of you. Um, but that's relational, right? Uh, maybe they're maybe they're wanting. Well, my friends should, you know, it's like the golden rule, right? Like do unto others, and so you're not doing unto them like they they would they they can do for you, and and so they they feel there's a lack of reciprocity, and. Um, their willingness to see you for who you are is is what I'm talking about, right? Is like seeing reality for what it is and accepting it is the way we can then change things. And so if I'm in a group of people and there's music in the background and a bunch of talking, I may ask to turn the music off. And there might be a couple people who feel sore about that. However, they either want me there or they don't. If they prefer the music over my presence, then I think maybe that gives me some information about who they are and what they <laughs> care about, right? <laughs> right, right. No, definitely. And and 
Um, I know in learning this type of, I guess, again, unlearning um, and then relearning, I think some of it for me does come from, um, like we've said already, some meditative meditation, yoga for me, uh, also therapy for me <laughs> has been a huge learning, um, and, a, just, again, an ongoing process. Um, is there anything else that you would add to that list or, or maybe you have different experiences, um, for that sort of self-discovery? Yeah, that's, um, so meditation, yoga, those things that help with self-awareness, internal awareness, as you so well put it. And a piece of that is, is self-regulation, I think. Um, therapy in th two or three different ways. Um, interpersonal, like psychodynamic therapy, so a one-on-one -on -one therapist where it's really just, you know, I think the, the power of therapy is, is that there, here's a person who professionally knows how to hold um, really healthy boundaries with another person. And um, that is a practice, that, that space. And it, I would say it took me, I mean, I, st I remember seeing therapists in my teens and so I've been seeing a therapist regularly, at least, I think at least since 2001, maybe, maybe earlier than that. Um, and, and I continue to, because I've, I've found it so valuable. The, the best therapeutic relationship I had absolutely helped me see that I was in an abusive marriage and, and that, that recognition helped me extricate from it. Um, so that therapist in particular um, was was instrumental in, in helping me see reality. Um, but also we had a very special dynamic, um, one that, you know, was really able to delve into some of the emotional um, challenges that I, that I was having. So, so that's really important. I think that Dialectical behavior therapy, um, DBT as it's called for short, has been extremely helpful in part because it, um, unlike CBT, which I, I know that some people really benefit from CBT, um, I found CBT challenging. Um, DBT does incorporate mindfulness and it's skills based. And so, you know, that model I was talking about earlier about what can I change, um, you know, DBT is, is, was aimed at people who got so dysregulated they harmed themselves. And that, you know, that the aim was at, at a population of patients who had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Um, I think we're, we're starting to understand that there's an overlap potentially between um, people diagnosed with that, um, perhaps a lot of women, I think it's, it's very heavily a, a, a female-based diagnosis, but that um, there's an overlap between between that population and autism, that there may be certain mental health presentations that are um, more more likely to to be put on people who are autistic. Um, so self harm is a is a behavior that maybe both those populations share. If if we if we think some some of that population is separate, um, by no means am I a clinician. I will say, but um, DBT helped me with some of those behaviors, and um, mainly because that, those behaviors are a way of dealing with distress, and so distress tolerance skills, and they call them skills, are so incredibly important, um, and so that that has been incredibly valuable to me is, is dialectic behavior therapy. The third is group therapy. Um, I can't say I've had a lot of group therapy experiences that were my idealized version of what group therapy is, but I do think that what happens in individual psychodynamic therapy, um, what ideally happens in individual one-on-one -on -one therapy is the establishing of a relationship with another person that is boundaried and healthy, um, models a supportive uh, environment, and and one that that is that is 
that is healthy and emotionally connected and so on. And that group therapy ideally does that in a group setting, um, that there's a certain amount of, um, of things that can come up relationally that if a therapist can hold the space allows people to um, look at how they may be projecting, how they may be uh, expecting things of other people that are, are unhealthy that, that, and demonstrate how to have good boundaried relationships in a group. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that, um, yeah, you summed up a lot of <laughs> the experiences that I've had over the years um, with also, you know, 20 plus years of therapy with all different types of modalities um, engaged. And, you know, I, I think, and I, I want to say again, also not a clinician here, but, um, you know, backing up to, I've, I've talked about these tools before, therapy, meditation, and different types of therapy and finding the right therapist, um, you know, because that, again, as you said, is is its own type of relationship and you want to make sure that it um, it it's suitable for you because you know, people are different, just like in any relationship. Um, but, you know, this this is a lot of work. Right. And so we're talking years and years of work um, and that is also ongoing. And so by no means do I feel uh, and I, I don't think either one of us has suggested that any of this is, oh, well, we just go to a therapist or we just have this open communication or we do this self-discovery. I think it's uh, it's a long term process and again, always evolving based on um, context, like you said, and also just based on where you're at in your life. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, being able to I think also and, and I guess this is where I'm headed with this is as we start practicing the boundary setting and as we start practicing the skill building, um, I have often encountered that things feel harder <laughs> um, before you start to feel like, oh, right, this is what good boundaries feels like, or this is what, um, you know, open communication about what my needs are is like. And, right, so if we're looking at the unlearning and then relearning, now we got to practice that relearning. Oh, it's messy, <laughs> isn't it? It's, it's very of, messy. It's kind of like, um, you know, this, what this is reminding me of is a little bit just of how I've had to work on healing my perfectionism and that the messiness of this, of, of learning boundaries, for instance. Um, I think I grew up, uh, and maybe this is as, as, a, as a woman, this was, this was a harder thing for me or something, but I was so afraid of conflict. And the idea of setting a boundary felt scary because it meant that I was telling somebody else no. Um, and, and what if I hurt somebody's feelings or what if they reject me and, and then, and then I've lost a connection and that's really scary. So, you know, I think it gets messy in part because there's all this, all this fear and baggage along with it. So, and, and, you know, I, I think accepting that, you know what, I, I set a boundary. I can remember when I set a boundary with somebody, this was, this was about five years ago. I was friends with someone and I set a boundary and they decided that I was being abusive. And I, I really had to let that friendship go. Um, in part because I realized that I probably had set a pattern with that person where I didn't have that boundary. And so they, they kind of, it's like I established a baseline where that boundary wasn't there. And then when I put the boundary up, um, you know, said like, I, I am not willing to do X. They experienced that in a way that was very threatening to them. And, you know, even the notion that it wasn't my job to sort of heal them around feeling rejected because I set a boundary was a boundary 
right? <laughs> so right. it's all, there's almost nesting dolls. It's almost circular, like these loops <laughs> where it's like, oh my gosh, like how do you extricate from the obligations that other people are putting on you, like the expectations other people are putting on, on me? I'll just talk about me. How do I extricate from that and go like, wait a minute, that expectation is not reasonable. But for, for years, I've been sort of allowing that to be status quo and recognize that, you know what, now I'm upsetting the status quo and there's going to be conflict. Um, is it acceptable for me? Is it, is it um, okay for me to set that boundary? Is this the more healthy place to be? And if I really do that digging in and emotional work and I, and I recognize that, yes, this, this is what I need to do to heal or to get into a healthier place, um, and other people are, are going to reject me for doing that, for supporting myself, then they're not supportive of me. Like, and really, you know, maybe it's going to hurt to lose that relationship, but is that relationship really supporting me or is it keeping me stuck? Um, and I think that that's partly what meditation and yoga and that self-acceptance piece that awareness can bring is so important because if you take a step back and look at the big picture, I think that there are people in our life that, you know, are engaged with us in an upward spiral of mutual support and freedom building. And then there might be people who are trying to drag us down the downward spiral. And um, it's okay to discern which direction that's going and try to correct it with that person to go to the upward spiral, but if that person is intent on their downward spiral, I'm not going to go along for the ride. And I'm, <laughs> it is okay for me to say that, that it does not make yeah. me a bad person. Um, and, and that boundary is actually a loving boundary that I'm not going to enable to go with that person in the downward spiral. Um, that's actually right. partly loving them, even if it means that we can't be together. Right. And that that's a that's a hard thing, but I think you you sum that up beautifully with, you know, saying that it's setting a boundary for yourself that's healthy, setting a boundary for them that's healthy, um, and you know, yes, it's messy, and yes, it can be uncomfortable, uh, but I but I have also experienced that when it when you move past that discomfort or sit with that discomfort at at the other side or even, even, you know, more when you get that, um, that support back, that really empowering support reflected back, then you're like, oh, right, this is why I've been doing all this work. This is why um, I've, I've, I set that boundary and being able to um, kind of say, okay, this is, this makes sense to me now. And then sometimes we, we slide back to that happens. Um, and then sometimes those serve as reminders as why, oh, right. That's why I did set that boundary. And that's why I did want, you know, I communicated my needs in that way. And now I'm remembering why I did that. And then, you know, you kind of course correct again. Absolutely. I think of it like a, like a savings account in a way, like a bank mm. account where, you're, you're putting credits in there and that for a good deal of my life, I spent overdrawn <laughs> and, um, and, you know, even, even the sense of like, as I've built that, I've built that, that positive, uh, reserve, right. That when I make a mistake or when I experience a conflict or a loss that does not, um, cause me to go into a tailspin. I can kind of keep it in perspective, right? Because I've created this good amount of um, reserve, the savings. Whereas when I was overdrawn and somebody interrupted me or looked at me funny or rejected me, it would be very devastating. And I think that's in some ways very similar to how if you're, um, if you're in debt and then a major unexpected emergency expense comes up, then it's more, much more disastrous than if you had some savings. Right. Right. No, exactly. 
Um, well, thank you so much. I think this is, you know, we've, we could probably, like you said, we could talk for hours. Um, and I do know we have plans to have some other conversations in the future. Um, and so I wanted to just touch on some of the other work that you're doing. Um, so I know we've chatted, but you are working on a book. Yes. Um, I am, uh, basically I wrote an essay that got published in a book by what was uh, the Autism Women's Network. Now it's the Autism Women and Non-Binary Network. Um, mm -hmm. They published a book called What Every Autistic Girl Wishes Her Parents Knew. And they are actually republishing that um, with my essay in it. Um, in It's coming out March 2021. And they're renaming it um, uh, to make it less gender specific, uh, which is great. Um, yeah. And it's, so it's called Sincerely, Your Autistic Child. Um, so look out for that. Um, it is uh, very exciting. Uh, my, my chapter is, is the same, but I know that, that some of the writing has been um, broadened to not be specific to women. Um, that is coming out by Beacon Press. Okay, excellent. And so I have given the reference to, so is your essay on their site right now? The essay is, is part of the book. So um, it's actually available for pre-order um, coming out March 2021. Um, that's where you'll find it. Great. So I will post that information there. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching, and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.